All right, we got another uh, long passage this morning and uh, a whole lot to cover. So I want to invite you to go ahead and have a seat and let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from Revelation chapter 17 to 19. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her... So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. 
For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants." Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and, the, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. God Almighty, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have given to us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, week 13. Time is short, passage long, lots in here. And uh, I just, I'm not going to do the review of the whole series. If you haven't been here, sorry. Go back and review the tape. But uh, we have said again and again and again that the startling imagery of the book of Revelation is meant to grab hold of our hearts. And we need these images because if you're a Christian, you know the Christian life is hard. It's very hard. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about why that's the case. It's because you have an enemy who hates you. That was the dragon in chapter 12. And the dragon uses political power to try to crush the church. That was the beast from the sea. And he uses religious and spiritual deception to try to corrupt the church. That was the beast from the earth. And this morning, another character is introduced. A woman whose name is Babylon the Great. 
If the beast from the sea attacks God's people with persecution and the beast from the earth attacks God's people with deception, Babylon the Great attacks with seduction. So here's yet another answer to the question, why is the Christian life so hard? It's hard because we live under the constant pressure of Babylonness. Now, I mentioned in our opening sermon in this series on Revelation that uh, the great New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham said that Revelation is astonishingly meticulous literary artistry. And And I hope that you're beginning to see why he would say something like that. And how recognizing that helps us read it better. So what I want to do this morning is I want to begin by pointing out another example of this that Daryl Johnson highlights in his marvelous book, Discipleship on the Edge. This woman, Babylon the Great, is called both a city and a prostitute. And if you pay attention to the literary structure, you'll see that she's another example of counterfeit that we find throughout the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, just listen to these parallels. In our passage, verse 1 of 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. In chapter 21, verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Here's another one in our, in our passage, chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of, full of abominations. Chapter 21, verse 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. If you're listening, this is what you should be putting together. The literary structure is telling us that whoever this woman is, she is the counterfeit city of God, and she is the counterfeit bride. Just like the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth are a counterfeit trinity. Mimicking, copycatting the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The literary artistry is meant to grab hold of your heart and enable you to patiently endure. Now, before we get into this text this morning, I need, I need to say three quick things. Some of you are put off by the image of a prostitute. And I just want to say, I didn't come up with this image. And neither did John. God gave it to him. And it's there for a purpose, so we need to listen. The second thing is, others of you don't like the image of a bride. And some of you are like, I'm a man's man, I'm not a bride. And I just want to say as gently as I can, get over yourself. Okay? Like, the Bible does it both ways, you know. In Galatians, both men and women are called sons of God. And in Revelation, both women and men are called the bride. Some of us just need to settle down a little bit. And finally... If you think that this passage is all about sex, you're going to be missing the point. The symbolism is sexual, but it's, some, it's symbolic of something so much bigger in our lives. It's symbolic of worship gone wrong, of disordered desire. 
And in fact, it's playing upon Old Testament motifs. Because in the Old Testament, when God wanted to confront Israel for her idolatry and justice, you know what he called it? He called it playing the whore. That kind of gets your attention, doesn't it? So here's the big idea that I'm going to work as we work our way through this passage. If you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are engaged to be married. You're betrothed, which is stronger than engagement. And you are to be preparing for a wedding. It's a long engagement, not going to lie. But the wedding day is coming. And faithfulness to Christ involves refusing the advance of other lovers. As Nancy Guthrie puts it in her book, we can't allow ourselves to be seduced by a love that will not last. Now, um, this passage is pretty thick with imagery. And uh, I'm thinking of it like a, a long, thick head of hair, right? I have three daughters, some of whom have like really thick hair. And I've gotten some experience learning how to brush Probably still don't know it, but this is, this is the image I want you to think about as we move our way through this passage. We're going to comb through it several times, each time noticing what our hairbrush picks up and pulling out strands of hair and taking a look. And how we're going to do that is we're going to ask four questions of this text as we comb through it again and again. What does the woman represent and why should we care? What does God do about her? What does God call us to do about her? And what does God offer instead? You ready? What does the woman represent? What does God do about her? What does God call us to do about her? And what does God offer instead? So let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. What does the woman represent? Let's talk about her name for a moment. Her name, stamped on her forehead, verse 5 of chapter 17, is Babylon the Great. Now, is Babylon a particular city? Well, yes and no. It was a real city, but not at the time that John was writing the book of Revelation. It had been smashed to bits centuries before. But Babylon became a code word for humanity trying to live life apart from the living God. That's Babylon. And it goes back to the story of Babel, which we read about in Genesis chapter 11. You remember the the key phrase in that story is, Let us build a tower to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's build a society without God. Let's structure our lives without God. Let's DIY everything without God. So in a word, Babylon is what the Bible might call worldliness. And at the time, it was Rome and its culture. But at any time, it could be any society or any city in its culture. There were Babylons before Rome, and there are Babylons after Rome, because at any time, in any place where you have worldliness, you have Babylon. So the woman is a city called Babylon, which is code for human endeavor without reference to God. But the main image we are given is that she's a prostitute, and she is everywhere. Notice where she sits. There's fluid imagery in this passage. She sits on the beasts, 17.3. She sits on many waters, 17.1. She sits on seven hills, 17.9. And each is a symbol signaling the space that she occupies. And she's all over the place. She sits on the beast, uh, chapter 17, verse 3. Do you remember 
chapter 13, the beast from the sea, which we mentioned in the beginning of our sermon, political power seeking, seeking to crush the church, she rides on its back. The beast from the sea funds and supports her shenanigans. And that happens everywhere. She sits on many waters, 17.1. Well, if you read a little later, brushing through the text, 17.15 tells us that the waters are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. She's working her trade everywhere. And then finally, we're told she sits on seven mountains. That's a reference to Rome. The city built on seven hills, Rome and its culture of extravagance and pride. And here, the angel is bringing it home for John and for his first readers. Not only is she working everywhere, she's working it right here, right now. She pervades Rome and everywhere like Rome, including Silicon Valley. You see... You got to notice where she sits, but you also got to see how she's described. Verse 4 arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's decked out. There's no fake stuff. It's all high end designer clothes, real gold and jewels. She's wealthy. And her profile on the app, it's perfect. And I don't know any, any other way to say this, but she's not from the red light district, she's an expensive escort. Attractive, exciting, alluring, wealthy, adorned with expensive garments. And she's not just any prostitute. Verse 5 says she is the mother of prostitutes. She gives birth to others who play the role. She's trying to get you to throw yourself in the arms of other lovers. She wants you to play the whore. And you know what? She is so persuasive and appealing. She looks fun. She looks powerful. Even John is fascinated with her. He falls under her spell for a moment. You notice what verse six says? When I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel has to snap him out of it. And you know what this is getting at? You know what this woman represents? This woman represents the seductive power of worldliness, of doing life without God. Worldliness that seeks to seduce the church. Now, please don't immediately think of atheists and porn stars or whatever it is that you're like filling in with your mind. It was Israel too. Israel fell under the spell of the world's seduction. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 21, God bemoans how the faithful city has become a whore. And you know, there's a long tradition going back to the 4th century of understanding this text to refer to the old Jerusalem. Jerusalem had become a harlot riding on the back of Roman power and wealth, seduced by the allure. But I think it's better to see this as applying to the church, which has on more than one occasion hopped into bed with culture and had a big old affair. When you start combing through chapter 18, which is like a series of eulogies over this woman's demise, it becomes incredibly obvious that this goes way beyond sexual sin. Worldliness isn't just sexual. could be that. But it involves greed and consumption and power and self-glorification. It intersects with our obsession with work and wealth building and the accumulation of what 
makes us feel comfortable. At the beginning and the end of Revelation 18, we hear mention of the nations having been drunk on her wine and merchants growing rich from the power of her luxurious living. And right in the middle, in verses that we didn't print, because it's a lot here, chapter 18, verse 11 through 13, we get the sales team boo-hooing because sales are down without her influence. I love the imagery of being drunk on her wine. Because you know what drunkenness produces? It produces an altered state of consciousness. And if you have too much, you don't even know what's happening to you. When you try to do life without God, you become a whore and you don't even know it. You throw yourself into the arms of countless lovers and they use you and abuse you. So how do you tell when you've fallen under her spell? Do you remember the, uh, the comedian Jeff Foxworthy who used to do his bit about you might be a redneck if? Remember this? Yeah, one of them was, I think, you might be a redneck if all your family's names rhyme. And uh, by the way, uh, my wife's father was Jimmy Ray, her brother was Jay, her sister is Angela Kay, and my wife's name is Melinda Faye. So I'm, I'm just saying, right? Just saying. Well, we might be sleeping with the world if our hopes and dreams and prayers have everything to do with increasing our comfort and nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We might be sleeping with the world if most of our time and money is spent on advancing ourselves and very little time and money is spent on advancing the gospel. We might be sleeping with the world if all our relationships are transactional. You know, it's interesting. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians regarding people from a worldly point of view. The world is seductive. And it seduces us in countless ways. It seduces us into consumption because nothing is ever enough and generosity might take sacrifice. We're like, my precious, you know, my precious, right? It seduces us into outrage because it feels so good instead of the long, hard work of reconciliation. It seduces us into using people instead of loving people. It seduces us into thinking we don't need God doing just fine all by ourselves. And you know what that is? That's being drunk on her wine. And you don't even know it. When you look back at the messages to the seven churches, you can see that many professing Christians in those congregations got all tangled up in the allure of Roman culture and its luxuries and its powers and its pleasure. That's worldliness doing its work. Propped up and supported by empire. And those who refuse to go along with the shenanigans, they begin to feel the heat. You know, sin is worse than we thought. It's not just bad behavior. It is adultery. It is unfaithfulness to the one that you were built for. No other religion says it quite like that, by the way. So here's the woman. The great prostitute is drawing humanity into the grip of worldliness, bringing it under her spell. And that could be you, and that could be me. Because what she's always trying to do is to get us to fall in love with the world. Got it? The Christian life is hard because we live under the constant pressure of Babylonness, the constant enticement of the great prostitute wanting us to throw ourselves into the arms of other lovers. That's the woman. Now, here's the second question. We'll be picking up pace. What does God do about her? 
And there's two things real quickly in this chunk of scripture that I want to draw your attention to. Evil always turns on itself and God is pulling the strings. And one day he will end her forever. Look at the first one. Evil always turns on itself and God is pulling the strings. Take out your brush. Let's comb back through the text. The woman is propped up by the beast, but the beast eventually turns on her. And Daryl Johnson makes this insightful observation. Evil has a tendency to self-destruct. And God has made it that way. You notice verses 16 through 18 in chapter 17? The prostitute always gets devoured by the beast. The beast doesn't really love her. He hates her. He's just using her. One day he's going to turn on her and strip her naked and burn her to ashes, it says. The beast is like her pimp. And when she's no longer making money for him or increasing his power, he's going to go loco on her. And if you think about this, history is filled with worldly isms that prove useful to empire for a while and then are viciously destroyed when no longer useful. System after system, ism after ism, turning on itself. And history bears witness to this. But this is what's most important. God is pulling the strings here. Verse 17 God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose of being of one mind and handing over their power to the royal, to royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God makes evil turn on itself again and again and again. When humanity draws its authority and strength from somewhere other than the living God to build a life for itself, it always ends up being eaten alive by it. Think about Wall Street. How many people have been chewed up and spit out by their incessant greed? Or think about addiction. You think you own this drug and it's useful to you, but then you find out it owns you and it begins to ruin you and all your relationships. Or what about those who flex power in the world? Yeah, it works for a while until another power comes and drops you to your knees. Babylon, the prostitute, always falls. Gets eaten up by the very power that made her Babylon. And God has made it that way. That's very sobering to consider. Especially if you're not yet a Christian. But here's the other thing God does about her. One day, he will end her evil forever. Another angel shows up on the scene at the beginning of chapter 18, announcing, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. God is going to take her out. And if you look at verses 7 and 8 of, of chapter 18, she may boast of her invincibility, but she's going to end up toast. And it's going to take her by total surprise. She will go down in a single day, it says in verse 8. That's a symbol, not a statistic. Happens quickly when she least expects it. And at the end of chapter 18, another angel rattles off a series of no mores, verses 21 through 24. She will have power no more. She will have industry no more. She will have influence no more, allure no more. It's the backside of all the no mores that we read about in Revelation 21. No more tears, no more suffering, no more sin, no more shame, no more heartache, no more guilt, no more death. She will experience an end of all the culture she produces. And it even talks about harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters and craftsmen and her mill. And lights go out. This is the end of Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes. Now, what does God call us to do about her now? 
you know what he calls us to? He calls us to flee from her seduction. Notice verse 4 of chapter 18. Come out of her, my people. Come out. Is there somewhere to go that is not Babylon? Where the great prostitute is not working her trade? Where we are free from the influence of worldliness? No. Not yet, at least. But there is a place of safety. And it doesn't involve a change of location. It involves a change of lovers. Throwing yourself into the arms of the lover you were built for and refusing the advance of all other lovers. And you know what that means for us? It means this. We're going to have to break up with all our old lovers. Our, our lover success, our lover comfort, our lover pleasure, our lover people pleasing. As Nancy Guthrie put it, we're going to have to delete the world's number from our phones. You can't keep flirting with worldliness. We got a wedding to prepare for. And Revelation 18 is trying to shake some sense into our souls and say, flirtation with the world is not harmless infatuation. She wants to take you into death. And God won't have that. Now let me be clear here. Music, food, work, romantic love, keep on going forever. There are so many things that we can enjoy as gifts from God. But when we give our hearts to them, it becomes an affair. And God hates it. He makes war on the sins with which we have made peace. You know, the call for God's people in the midst of Babylon the prostitute is to be in the world, but not of it. To refuse to make our home here, to refuse to bundle all our hopes in what this world offers, to refuse to make all our plans be about success and money and popularity and comfort and pleasure. To come out means resisting this, the seductive nature of her advertising. It means being discerning. It, mean, it means starving the greed out of our own hearts of always wanting more and better. And here's the thing. You cannot do this alone. You need and I need community. You need to be a part of a people who are resisting the allure of worldliness. You need to be a part of the bride. And that leads us to the last thing. What does God offer instead of all this? And this is chapter 19. In chapter 19, God gives us a beautiful counter image that we need to take to heart. And it's from the future, but it applies in the present. And the sum of it is some of it is this. You don't have to be a prostitute anymore. You can actually become a bride. As you roll into chapter 19, John tells us what he heard and saw next, and it should make our hair blow back a little bit. Because what he hears and sees is a great multitude crying out like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And you know what they're saying over and over and over again? Hallelujah. Praise God. It doesn't mean like, dude, wow. It means praise God again and again and again and again, four times. I get that? Again and again and again and again. Because God has judged the great prostitute, verse two. The bridegroom 
has put an end to all her brutality and cruelty and seduction. All her deception and trickeration will be over. Never again will she entice. Never again will she entrap. Never again will she lead astray. Never again. Are you hearing this? Because if you are, you might want to say, Hallelujah! Praise God! But here's something utterly fascinating. This is the only place in the New Testament that we find this word. Does that surprise you? It did me. But it's all over the Psalms. It's how the book of Psalm ends. Psalms 146 through 150. Each begin and end with hallelujah. And you know what the Psalms are always drawing our attention to? God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus. And what these Psalms are doing are feeding hope that God would one day deliver his people again. And now we have a multitude in heaven celebrating this deliverance being accomplished. And do you know what the celebration of this deliverance is called? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the party to end all parties. This is the feast to end all feasts. This is the celebration that is the consummation of all celebrations because it will be forever. And the angel says to John, write this down. Don't miss this, John. Blessed are all who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And guess what? We're not just being invited as guests. We're being invited to be the bride. Do you see what is happening? We're given another image to sustain us and cultivate patient endurance in the journey of life. Another image to help us resist the seduction of the world and remain faithful as Jesus' bride. And if you've been tracking well, you will recognize this has been the story all along. This is the story running through the book of Revelation. Think about this message, seven messages to the seven churches. The church of Ephesus, what was the problem? You've left left your first love. The The church of Laodicea, what does Jesus say? Well, he knocks at the door and he wants to come in and he's borrowing language from the love poem of the Song of Songs. That's the beginning and end of the seven messages to the churches. And right in the middle, in between... Jesus addresses the church at Thyatira who is being seduced by the woman Jezebel to get in bed with the world, right? This is the storyline coming to its consummation in the book of Revelation. This is the storyline of the whole Old Testament. God relating to his people as a husband to a bride and it reaches this fever pitch in the prophets. Isaiah 54, Isaiah 61, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 16 and the book of Hosea where God is reclaiming his adulterous spouse. And then as we roll into the New Testament, we find John the Baptist calling himself the friend of the bridegroom, making way for the coming of Jesus. He's the best man at the wedding. And then we have Paul telling the church at Ephesus that the church is the bride of Christ. And he loved her and laid down his life for her. You see what's happening? This is it. This is the great day. It is here and it will last forever. It's the vision that John is having his attention drawn to. And that God is saying, I want you to see this. And I want you to take this to heart. And notice, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The role played by Yahweh in the Old Testament is now played by Jesus in the New. A not-so-subtle reference to his deity. How do we prepare? Well, you've got to dress for the occasion. And you notice what it says at the end of chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. 
The bride has made herself ready. How? By putting on the clothes her husband has given to her to wear. Now, pay close attention to this language. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself. What are we talking about here? Yes, we're talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But also, it says specifically, these clothes are the righteous deeds of the saints. And they are given to her. Jesus gave his life for us, lived and died so that we could be declared righteous. But then he begins to work his life in us, freeing us from the seductions of the world, from captivity to Babylon, empowering us to walk not in perfection, but in faithfulness. These aren't deeds done to get a relationship with God. They are deeds done because of a relationship with God. Can you imagine prostitutes like you and me dressed as a bride? On that day, that great day, we'll have the relief and joy of being together. And as Nancy Guthrie puts it, enjoying the marriage we were meant for, the happiest marriage of all time, the marriage that will never end. Do you hear the good news? Because that's what's going to draw your heart away from the world. Every one of us in this room wrestles with unfaithfulness. We are enticed and taken in by the world's advances. When it comes to us and says, I can fulfill you. I can satisfy you. I can make you whole. But here's the thing, over against our unfaithfulness, Jesus is completely faithful. Which means that in his arms, there is security. There is love like no other. There is everlasting joy forever. And he's inviting us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Prostitutes can become brides through the sacrificial love of the Lamb. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a prostitute hopping in bed with countless lovers throughout your life? Maybe sometimes this, maybe sometimes that. Or do you want to be a bride betrothed to one husband? You know, it's interesting. The great prostitute recruits from every tribe, tongue, and nation. She sits on many waters. But you know who else recruits? The bride. Because Jesus called us to go and make disciples of every nation. And here's the good news. Because the bride is betrothed to the lamb who bounced the dragon, he's going to have a multitude that no one can number gathered at his wedding feast. Are you getting ready? Are you preparing for that day? Are you refusing the advance of other lovers? Jesus is calling you to the joy of the wedding feast. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, for this imagery that you've given us. These symbols that help us to reimagine the world, not as it appears, but as it really is. And we thank you for your loving pursuit of us, that you never give up, that you relentlessly come again and again to pull us away and to draw us into the joy of that great day. Would you make that land in our hearts today, whether that's for the first time or for the millionth time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.